Trusting involves vulnerability. And vulnerability is almost always uncomfortable. Uncomfortable in the work environment, sometimes uncomfortable in even our most intimate environments, our most, most intimate relationships. On the show today, world-renowned trust expert Charles Feldman, here to talk about the conditions necessary to build deep trust in the workplace. Andy Vasily. Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning into my Run Your Life podcast series. As always, I want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. So today's topic and theme that we're going to unpack is trust. But before beginning today's episode with world-renowned trust expert Charles Feldman, I want to hit the pause button and have you reflect on the concept of trust and what it means to you in your own life based on your own unique experiences and context. We all have our own way of dealing with trust and distrust, and we have lots of different experiences in our life uh, when people have betrayed us or hurt us or let us down. And we have learned to deal with trust in certain ways as a result of that. So that's what we're going to unpack today is this idea of trust in the workplace, um, how to build trusting relationships, and some of the big ideas behind trust. According to Psychology Today, recent neuroscience research shows that in many ways our brains are hardwired to trust others. This aspect of our human nature is one reason that having our trust betrayed can short-circuit our neurobiology and make it very difficult to trust again. In researching for this podcast, I was really interested in finding the origin of the word trust. And what I found was that it came into existence about 900 years ago. And its origins are found in the Old Norse Germanic branch of language in the form of the abstract noun traustum, which literally translated to needing help or helping others, having confidence in others, protection and support. The word traustum made its way into the English language about 1300 as the word trust, And since that time, the definition has stayed very consistent. For hundreds of years, the presence of trust cements relationships by allowing people to live and work together and feel psychologically and physically safe and to feel that they truly belong to a group. But what does this actually mean to us as humans in our ability to trust or not trust? For countless years when it comes to leadership, trust in a leader allows organizations and communities to flourish and thrive, while the absence of trust causes fragmentation, conflict, hurt, 
and in extreme cases, war. There has been so many research studies over the decades、uh, in relation to trust, but one research study that I want to share with you was conducted by Harvard Business Review writer Paul Zak. And what Paul found through his years of research is that building a culture of trust in the workplace is what makes a meaningful difference. Seems like a no-brainer, right? I think we we would all say that, and we would all agree that trust is very important. But what Paul found was that employees in high-trust organizations are more productive, have more energy at work, collaborate better with their colleagues. And stay with their employers longer than people working at low trust companies. They also suffer less chronic stress and are happier with their lives. And these factors have been shown to consistently fuel stronger performance. In fact, over the ten years of research, Paul and his research team found that compared with people at low trust companies, people at high trust companies report seventy four percent less stress. 106% more energy at work, 50% higher productivity, 13% fewer sick days, 76% more engagement, 29% more satisfaction with their lives, and 40% less burnout. Paul also found that despite the evidence that you can't buy higher job satisfaction. Organizations still use golden handcuffs to keep good employees in place, and while such efforts might boost workplace happiness in the short term, they fail to have any lasting effect on talent retention or performance. So, just keep that study in mind as you think about your own workplace, wherever you're listening to this in the world. It might be a school. It might be、uh, another type of business,、uh, but whatever the business is or the organization, I want you to reflect on trust in that organization. If you're a leader, think about trust from your own leadership perspective. And if you're working in the trenches and being led by others, think about to what extent you have trust in leadership. To what extent you have trust in your colleagues, the people that you work with day in and day out, and to what extent are you responsible for building trusting relationships in the workplace? So just think about those things as we dive into the discussion today. My guest today, Charles Feldman, has spent the last three decades deeply devoted to unpacking the concept of trust, and through his work. He tries to help people understand that trusting others is not simply a switch that we turn off forever when trust has been broken. He firmly believes that trust is an essential aspect of strong, authentic, and productive working relationships. But also, that trust doesn't just happen; it takes attention to the words and behaviors that affect trust. His thin book of trust is what we're going to talk about today. The first edition came out in 2008. The second edition came out in July 2021. But the second edition provides a simple, powerful framework and language for building, maintaining, and restoring trust. 
filled with examples, it is designed to help readers pay attention to what matters, to consistently build, maintain, and when necessary, restore strong trust in any complex, fast-paced, and demanding work environment. Charles Feltman's work with trust has been embraced by countless leaders around the world who have implemented his framework with great success. Renowned author, speaker, and podcaster Brene Brown has built her amazing work around Charles Feltman's definition of trust. This is what Brene says about the concept of trust as it relates to Charles's work. What is trust? What do we talk about when we talk about trust? Trust is a big word, right? To hear, I trust you or I don't trust you, I don't even know what that means. So I want to know, what is the anatomy of trust? What does that mean? So I started looking in the research, and I found a definition from Charles Feltman that I think is the most beautiful definition I've ever heard. And it's simply this. Trust is choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. Choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. Feltman says that distrust is what I have shared with you that is important to me is not safe with you. So I thought, that's true. And Feltman really calls for this, let's understand what trust is. So we went back into all the data to find out, can I figure out what trust is? Do I know what trust is from the data? And I think I do know what trust is. And I put together an acronym, BRAVING, B-R-A-V-I-N-G, BRAVING. Because when we trust, we are braving connection with someone. Amazing words from Brene as she speaks about the impact that Charles's work has had on her own work, including the braving inventory that she shares in her work and in her books. But having that in there really emphasizes the impact that Charles's work has had. So I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with you today. As you listen to today's episode with Charles, I hope you find value in learning more about his trust framework and how it might apply in your own personal and professional life. And if you are a leader, how might you use Charles's work to build more trusting, positive relationships in the workplace? What might you need to do better and what actions might you need to take to rebuild any relationships that have been broken due to distrust? So these are some of the things that I want you to think about as you listen to Charles. It was truly an honor to speak with Charles, to better understand his journey, and have a conversation about his powerful book called The Thin Book of Trust. I hope that after this podcast, you get your hands on a copy of the book and share it with your staff or just to read it yourself. It is sure to get you to look at the concept of trust through a different lens. So with that, let's jump right into my conversation with the inspiring Charles Feldman. Um, just for the listeners today, can you help provide some context? Can you share who you are and what you're most known for? 
who I am. Well, that's a that's a pretty big one. <laughs> <laughs> I could I, maybe I ought to start with what I'm kind of known for. Sure. Um, I'm a no, known uh, for my coaching. I'm an executive coach, a leadership coach. I work with teams and individual executives, um, and I'm known for that in in certain circles, in many circles, I hope. Um, I'm also known for my work in the the area of trust building in organizations. And, and how individuals and teams and leaders all contribute or, or not to how trust gets built and how it's maintained and how it's repaired if it's damaged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I listened to Brene's podcast, you shared a lot about early days. And in particular, you, you traveled uh, in Europe. So you left the States and you went and traveled in Europe and then you came back to the States. And I'm going to put Brene's uh, podcast also in the show notes so people can listen to that episode. So to set even more context, if we were to reflect on early days in your life, what role did trust play? So was trust something that you learned through family and important mentors in your life? Or was trust something that was lacking in your environment growing up? I think that trust was there in my family. It was my understanding of trust and trustworthiness came initially, I think, just like most of us from our our caregivers when we're young. Are they trustworthy? Can we trust them or not? So it's just an I trust you, I don't trust you. And I guess fundamentally, I trusted my parents for some portion of my growing up. And then at some point things changed and I lost trust in my father for some things that I learned that about him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was that that happened. And I also learned what it meant to be for me to be trustworthy over time in different settings Partially my when I was young teenager anyway, I, I was part of a church community for a while and we looked at it from a moral perspective. Trustworthiness was a moral issue in that context. So it took a took a while for me to kind of make the connection to, oh yeah, but there's some behaviors here that are important, right? Yeah. So when I make a an assessment of someone else's trustworthiness or they make an assessment of mine uh, it's not about the the moral decision behind it so much as it is about what are the behaviors and and how am I how am I saying what am I looking at when I make a, a choice to trust this person or mm-hmm. not trust this person and I learned a lot of that growing up in my family in my community with the, the friends that I had and it, often choices came into conflict. As a, as a teenager and even into my 20s and early 30s, I didn't have a lot of capacity for self-reflection. So <laughs> I wasn't, I, I wouldn't say that I was really diving into it too deeply. But once I got to my mid-20s, a couple of times I kind of came up against other people not trusting me and trying, having started to figure that out. What's going on here? Why doesn't this person trust me? What's going on with that? Uh, and having to take stock in a way that I hadn't before. Or people trusting me a couple of times, maybe when they shouldn't have. And whoa, what happened there? How did you know? How did I get away with that, if you will? 
And then also I started doing something called mediation when I was in my mid-20s. I was working at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I was also a student there at that time. Mm -hmm. And I got involved with an agency that provided conflict mediation in the community of Santa Cruz. And I got a front row seat in how trust can, how it can be damaged or destroyed, but also how it can be rebuilt because I was helping people do that, helping them rebuild sufficient trust so that they could continue to be neighbors. They could continue to be, you know, a business and a, um, and a customer or, you know, clientele mm -hmm. that would come to that business. Um, so, I began to think about trust in a in a more in-depth way than just this thing that was in the background that was either assumed you had it or didn't. Do you feel, I just want to ask something there, do you feel that it was a strength of yours? Did you develop an early strength to be curious about others and to be curious about these sorts of things? Um, like if you think about yourself, what were some early strengths that might have led you on the path of being very passionate about better understanding trust? Well, I think actually that didn't come till later, <laughs> to mm -hmm. be honest with you. I was talking with someone else about this um, just a few days ago, and I would say up, up really it wasn't until I was in my early, early 40s mm -hmm. that I began to become more self-reflective, that I really began to become curious about all of these, all of the things that you spoke about and, and many other things as well. So, you know, late 30s, early 40s, uh, I started to um, wonder, you know, what, what does build trust and what doesn't? Um, I'd already had the experience of working in a mediation setting where I'm trying to help other people build trust, but turning it back on myself and reflecting for me, how do I need to show up in order for people to trust me? Mm -hmm. And why should I do that? And what am I gonna, you know, what's, what's the value in being worthy of other people's trust? How do I understand what what's important to other people in terms of trusting. Still was working with the idea at that time of an on-off switch, where either it's you trust me or you don't, I trust you or I don't. Um, and it wasn't until until I went through coach training, and I, at that point I was probably you know, 49, 50 years old, mm -hmm. that I came across this idea that actually trust isn't one on-off switch, that there are different ways to trust people, different, I'll call them domains in which we can trust or not trust people. And it's not just one on off. It's not, I trust you or I don't trust you. It's, oh, I can trust you in these ways, in these kinds of situations, but not so much in that one. Mm -hmm. And being able to make that distinction, it allows me to work more effectively with you. So I can kind of put some boundaries up around the, the, within the domain in which I don't necessarily trust you so well, and still have a good working relationship with you. Plus, I can begin to look at the behaviors that I see in you that I'm assessing are not trustworthy. And first, understanding why that's important to me, what's what's going on there for me that I'm not in, not trusting you so much when you do those things. But also, I can have a conversation with you now about it that doesn't begin with, hey, Andy, I don't trust you, but rather begins with, I want to talk with you about certain things that you do that are, are challenging for me. Mm -hmm. 
And what you just said right there is that that idea of the way you look at trust allows people to approach relationships with less constriction because as you say it's not on or off you know there, there's possibilities so and that's what's so fascinating about the book and i actually bought the book for our entire leadership team so we're doing a book study right now and we're really trying to unpack what trust means and we're looking at those four assessments of trust and it's is very empowering because you think of relationships that you have in your life that you had that on off switch i trust them or i don't and you think of the infinite potential that possibly existed with rebuilding relationships that were never rebuilt if we just approached it in a different way and i think your work is very beautiful in that sense and it allows people to truly kind of double down on on important relationships in their life at work and to be able to communicate better and to put specific skills into action that allow you to look at trust through a different lens so i really appreciate that about your work and we're ha- we've been having some very meaningful discussions. Uh, we're on chapter three right now, but each week in our leadership meeting, we're unpacking one chapter and talking about what resonates. And nobody's trying to have the right answer. But what this has done, has it has opened the door to us having more genuine, authentic discussions. I think that's what's most important. And, you know, going back to early days, Charles, I want to ask you about, you know, when people are pursuing things that they are passionate about, Sometimes there's a major pivot point in their life or a turning point that shapes the trajectory of their career. So in 1992, you left a senior management position to start your own consulting business, which focused on helping your clients to experience more success and well-being. Can you take us through the moments um, or buildup of moments that ignited your desire to start your own company? Because that is really what led to the trajectory you've been on. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So for at least a year before I left um, to do that, I had been thinking about and talking with friends and talking with my wife about going off on my own consulting. I'd done a brief stint as a as a as a consultant, part of a consulting company, part of a consulting group, and um, what I what I liked about that was that I thought I could see into the the concerns and issues within an organization and help people um, look at those concerns and issues from a different perspective than they were stuck in. They were mm-hmm. mired in their own perspective, which wasn't actually helping them. And I, I knew from experience that I could that I could actually provide some benefit in that respect. I could give them a different angle to look at or a different lens to look through. Uh, and with my experience in working with in, within an organization, I had the you know, I, I kind of understood the politics of that, the, all of the pieces of that that were valuable, and the, the potential places where I needed to you know be careful in presenting new ideas to folks and so on. So I'd been talking about that for a while, and at the same time, I was in fact, like you said, I was in a leadership position in an organization, and le- becoming less and less. Um, engaged with that work, less and less interested because because I was thinking more about this other stuff, yeah. and that you were uh, passionate about. That I was passionate about. Um, so the reason I actually left wasn't uh, the actual moment came about because my boss uh, recognized that I wasn't so engaged and fired me. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I so I went home. You know, I don't know if you've ever been fired from a job, no matter how big or small. It, it, there's always a punch in the gut. Yeah. A moment, you know, that first moment of, oh my God, I've been fired. Jeez, yeah. um, what am I going to do? They, you know, they gave me a nice package. So it was it was not like, okay, you're, you're on your own from here on out. Um, I had a runway. So I went home and I told my wife I'd been fired. And she said, oh, great. Now you can, <laughs> now you can start doing what you've been talking about doing for the last year at least, yeah. and that kind of mo- in that moment that got reframed <laughs> for me. So um, that's when I started uh, actually doing what I'd been talking about doing. And in that moment, what was your biggest fear? Were you did you have any fears first of all? Oh. Yeah, was this going to work? Was I going to be able to feed my family? You know, was I going to be able to pay the mortgage? And was I going to get? Was I was I going to have any clients? Um, were they going to be happy with my? All those things, yeah, all of that stuff was up for me. Um, even just how was I going to make that transition? Because I'd been so you know for at that point you know twelve years I'd put on you know, nice clothes because I you know I, I my area of expertise was was marketing. So I was a, so I put on nice clothes every day to go to work, basically is the idea. Um, you know, tie and jacket and whatnot. And I actually found that in order to, to be able to work at home, I had to have my office separate from everything else. And when I was in my office, my wife didn't come in and, or my kids didn't come in and disturb me. Not only that, but I put on a jacket and tie to go and sit in my home office <laughs> because I had to. That was how I was able to make that transition, and that yeah. lasted for probably about four or five months. Finally, I said, "What the hell am I doing?" Yeah. So I could put the tie and coat on to go visit a client, but I didn't need to wear it in my home office. Yeah. <laughs> for a while, headhunters would call me and say, "Hey, you know, I have something for you," and I gave myself, I guess, about nine months to get going and saying no during that nine months. And they were all saying, you know, if you keep saying no to us, nine months, you're not going to, you know, so I basically had nine months to, yeah. to get myself going and it, it worked. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And let's really explore the definition of trust. And, uh, you know, Brene talks about that she always uses your definition of trust and distrust, and it's helped to kind of guide her work and, and her writing. So just for the sake of the audience, and, you know, I'm going to have a, a link to your book uh, in the show notes. So I, I highly encourage anyone listening to get their hands on a copy of the, the book. But uh, I would love to explore the definition of trust uh, that you use in your book and your presentation. So I'm going to read the definition of trust and distrust. And then I just want to ask you about what this means to you and how it applies uh, more than ever to the work that you do now. So trust is defined as choosing to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. And distrust is what is important to us is not safe with this person in this situation or in any situation. Can you just springboard off of that and and tell us how has your interpretation of trust changed a bit over the years and does it continue to change or is it still these definitions? I find these definitions extraordinarily powerful when yeah. I work with with clients and when I you know look at things myself or you know making making choices around trusting or not. So the only difference I guess I would 
would say is that may I make it clear that that definition applies to trusting someone else. At the same time, someone else might be, will be, looking at me using that same definition. Um, can I risk choosing to make something I value vulnerable to this person, this person's actions, what mm -hmm. they're going to do? So there are some important pieces of this. One, probably the most important, is, is trusting involves vulnerability. And vulnerability is almost always uncomfortable. Uncomfortable in the work environment, sometimes uncomfortable in even our most intimate environments, or in most, most intimate relationships. So why? What's the, what's the value in being uncomfortable in that way, at least initially, until the trust builds and becomes just a natural part of the relationship? So um, in a work setting, we need to do stuff with other people. We need to coordinate action. We need to collaborate. We need to think together. Uh, we can't do that stuff on our own. Uh, rarely does one person all by themselves create something. It's almost, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the time, we're doing it with other people, in conversation, in relationship with other people. So if we, and when we trust the other people we're in relationship with and doing whatever we're doing, the work we're doing, it goes so much better, so much faster, so much more smoothly. Um, we're able to innovate so much better more effectively and create together and go from point A to point B more directly. So that's the for, say, for the sake of what that we trust. We're willing to be vulnerable, to risk making something we value vulnerable. So that's, that's an important piece, getting people in touch with, for the sake of what am I doing this? If I'm on a, if it's the team, for the sake of what are we asking everybody on the team to be vulnerable with each other? Charles, can I ask you something just there, just a, a quick timeout? Because when I first heard that definition, I wrote it down and and I paused the podcast with Brene, and I was like, I, I needed to like read it a few times, and and I was processing it. So, can you say the definition again? Yeah, trusting is choosing to risk making something. I value vulnerable to someone else's actions. Yeah. So can we just double click on that? Yeah. And that's what I was trying to better understand. So personal values, like just dive into the word value, something I value and, and give some examples of what that might look like just to set yeah. more context. Well, and that's actually the next piece when I'm working with someone around this is to um, help them kind of pull that out. What is it that I'm risking here? What What is it that's valuable to me? And if you think about it, in, in the workplace, there are certain things that everything from um, time, right? If, if Do I trust that you're going to be, you know, you're going to get stuff to me on time so that we can move forward together quickly, or am I going to be waiting around for you and wasting my time? Now that's a you know, very simple one, all the way up to my reputation, even maybe my job. Um, I might be risking my ideas because if I give you an idea that you know talk to you about an idea that I have, 
I'm trusting that you are going to represent that as my idea and not yours mm -hmm. and not take advantage of that for your benefit and leave me out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm risking, of course, my, I said my, my reputation yeah. um, if I share something. And also confidences. You know, if I um, give you an example of that one, uh, I had a client not long ago who was talking about uh, she would go in and talk to her boss who would talk about other people that in, in, in the organization kind of in a, a disparaging way. Mm -hmm. And that translated to her that if I share something um, that's important to me with my boss, is he going to do the same to other people? Is he going to be talking about me and my, you know, what, what's important to me to other people in a disparaging way or mocking way? Mm -hmm. So she began to really close down to her boss. Um, she began to really distrust him because that was what she was, that, that she valued her own self-esteem. A whole bunch of different things, mm -hmm. but really helping people understand what is it in this relation, this relationship um, that I value and that I'm risking, or maybe not in that distrust scenario. What is it that I don't feel like I can really make vulnerable to this person? Does that begin to? Yeah, to, it does. You know, but I, I'm also yeah, it totally does, and and I'm also thinking mental health as well because when you're working on teams with people you know people have been struggling through covid and uh, mental health issues have skyrocketed so you imagine somebody who's working on a leadership team that has struggled mentally that is afraid to open up and admit that and they might be going through hell beneath the surface so that would also classify as making something i value vulnerable to another person's actions yeah Yes. And then there's the other piece of that, speaking of COVID and people working from home for two years. And now what's going to happen when we can potentially go back and be in an office with other people in person? Um, but let's say I've been I've found that I work a whole lot better from home. And it's a lot less stressful mm -hmm. because I can attend to things at home that I need. I, I'm not sitting there worrying during the day about stuff's going on at home it's right there i can deal with it as i need to and then get back to my work and i don't have to spend an hour in traffic commuting mm -hmm. um, and yet my boss wants me to come back into the office five days a week so there's a trust issue in the making right there do i trust that he actually has or she he or she has my interests in mind here in requiring me to come back into the office so again, what's the value there? The value is my capacity to work well and my capacity for well-being by being home more often as I work. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And if we were to jump into your book, so you've written the the second edition is what we're doing a book study um, on right now, but you wrote the first book, I think it was published in December 2008. The Thin Book of Trust, an Essential Primer for Building Trust at Work. Can you tell us about the process in the original edition? Can you tell us about the process of putting pen to paper and writing that book? Being a thin book of trust, uh, talk about the challenges of being as precise as possible to capture the essence of trust 
and the lessons about trust that you were trying to get across to the readers in so few pages. Yeah, it turned out the first edition was 68 pages. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I joke a lot about um, how my publisher, editor, uh, you know, I'd, I'd give her a chapter and she'd come back to me and say, okay, um, we're writing a thin book of trust here. Thin book. Thin book means fewer words. You've got to take a lot of words out of here, Charles. You've got way <laughs> too many words. But the truth of the matter is that's one of the things that I think I do well is explaining complex ideas in ways that people can understand that are, you know, that are clear, um, that are concise, and at the same time, get the message across in a compelling way. Mm -hmm. So I was actually engaged in a process of something I do well with a, what I think is a very, very important topic, because if we don't have trust of each other, of the people we're working with, it makes that whole enterprise, I'll turn it around. When we do have trust between the people we're working with, ourselves and the people we're working with, the enterprise is bound to be much more successful. And we also uh, create greater well-being for ourselves and the people that we work with. So it's, as I say somewhere in the beginning of the book, the stakes are too high not to be intentional yeah. about building trust with each other. Don't leave it to chance. You know, yeah. have a framework we can yeah. use. Yeah. Be intentional about doing it. Have the conversation, have conversations about trust explicitly. Yeah. Figure out, understand where other people are coming from and what's important to them uh, in terms of, of trustworthiness so that I can show up in a way that, that is trustworthy to them. Yeah. And I think that's what the book does so well. You know, I just read the second edition. I didn't read the first, but in jumping into the second edition, you released it in July, 2021. And I'm just going to summarize. I'm going to read a, a quote from the beginning of the book. And the quote says this, whether you lead others, contribute individually, or serve as a coach, consultant, facilitator, HR, or OD, what does HR and OD stand for there? Human Resources, Organizational Development. Okay. So HROD professional, your ability to generate and sustain strong trust is critical to the success and well-being of your enterprise. It is my hope this new edition serves you well in becoming an exceptional trust builder. So that's what I really want to jump into now because you provide some very sound frameworks to help deepen trust in the workplace. There's a lot of books about trust, but this is one of the first ones that I've come across that's so practical and breaks it down in such an understandable way. So when you think about the second edition of the book, what is it that you hope the, the readers will learn to apply in, in both their personal and professional life? Well, the second edition of, edition of the book, let me just say, the big addition was um, trust building on teams. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to add that. So that was an addition that, that came into the second, the second edition of the book. Um, I also changed a few small things that had been bothering me over the years <laughs> that I almost, almost right away went, oh, man, I could have said that differently, been more clear about that or, or whatever. So I changed those or added those little pieces. I also changed 
there's a section on the neuroscience of trust that I, I changed because a whole lot has happened in the last decade around neuroscience and trust. So I found myself having to be, to make that more general in a sense, but also practical. Uh, but really the addition, the, the, what I hope anybody takes away from the book, whether they are reading the first edition, the second edition, um, listening to a podcast that talks about the book, the things I want people to take away are building trust is is essential for both success and well-being of anyone in an or working in an organization. It's it's essential for me and my coworkers, me and my boss, me and the people who report to me, our teams the teams I'm on and for the whole company. So I've, I think it's, you know, I think th it's very clear to me and, and there's been a lot of research that shows that, um, that trust is a foundational piece. Um, Patrick Lencioni in his book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, more or less, you know, he says that's the foundation, right? <laughs> and then you can build other stuff on top of that. Um, so I think that's essential. So how do you do that? How do you be intentional about building trust. And when I say building trust, I don't just mean between you and me. That's important. I need to be able to do that with the other people that I work with. Um, build it, maintain it, repair it if there's a, some damage to it. For leaders, it's also about creating an environment in which other people can trust each other, come to trust each other build and maintain trust well with each other and repair it with each other. So as a leader, it's about creating a culture of trust in the organization that works for the people who are in it. Um, and so what I, I hope people take away is that trust and that trust building, whether it's between you and me, um, or I'm showing up as trustworthy to you, you're showing up as trustworthy to me, or I'm a leader creating a culture of trust in my team, organization, whatever. Trust is a competency. I told you, you know, I talked about that kind of my church community when yeah. I was very young, looked at it as a moral issue, mm -hmm. um, which essentially says, okay, you, you're either you're a moral person and therefore you're trustworthy or you're not. Um, you're not a moral person or you're not trustworthy and therefore you're not a moral person. Mm -hmm. Um but looking at it as a competency, it's about skill, a set of skills that can be learned, that can be developed and improved, that can be practiced on a regular basis, intentionally, on purpose. And that's what I hope people take away from the book is that they can do that. And here are some ways, here's some things that you can, tools that you can use, a framework that you can use, language that you can use to do that intentionally. Um, oh, and by the way, I might as well just put in a plug for this. Uh, a colleague and I have a series of podcasts called Trust on Purpose, yeah. in which we're taking deep dives into different aspects of trust um, from the book and from other Awesome. sources. So it's out there. You can, you can just Google trust on purpose and find right. the podcasts, but yeah, that's what I hope that people take away from the book is that they can, that it's a competency that can be learned, developed, practiced, 
And here is a framework you can use. There are other frameworks too. There are other great frameworks out there. It's just that I happen to use this one over the years and it's been successful. Right. And so think of schools around the world and every year, you know, the summer vacation, and then you start the new school year and new, uh, the teachers, the staff will return and the educational leadership team will, will run orientation. And they might throw an article out about trust and say, let's discuss this. Okay. Or they might do a, an exercise like the buckets of trust or something like this. Talk about which bucket of trust is most important to you. And then it's not revisited again throughout the whole year. So how do you go much deeper than surface level? So what's your recommendation to schools around the world during that orientation time at the beginning, instead of jumping right into discussions about math and literacy and all of these other things, what do you recommend schools do to really double down and invest on developing trust uh, on a much deeper level in their organization to set the school year off on the right foot and to continue to deepen trust throughout the year? So the same, basically the same as when I'm working with a team and I'm doing a, a workshop on trust with a team or I'm coaching a team and the trust is a, almost always a part of that process, which is that, um, yeah, you do, you talk about it initially and declare it as a priority, as an ongoing priority. So work whenever we meet, um, maybe we have, like you were saying, you know, you have ongoing discussions about this. You're kind of working through the book. Mm -hmm. So it takes some time to do that. Uh, it is pretty, pretty, um, ineffective to just say something about it and, or just say, Hey, we got to trust each other. Right. So let's do it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not, that's not going to really go anywhere. It's how, how yeah. we're going to do that. Um, so one of the things that I work with with teams is, for example, uh, okay, so let's make some agreements around how we're going to be with each other that will build trust, that will help us maintain it. Um, and then let's do those things. Let's, mm -hmm. let's make sure that we keep them, those agreements front and center. And even more importantly, how are we going to um, uh, hold each other and ourselves accountable? So if you know we're you know I I do something that actually uh, is runs counter to one of our agreements with each other, what's going to happen? What's what's you know are you good are you going to as another team member? going to be able to come to me and say, hey, Charles, you know, I just noticed you, you bid X. And that really kind of runs counter to what uh, we had all agreed on. What's going on with that? Or are you going to go to the team leader? Um, or, you know, how is that all going to play out so that we all understand the expectation around that? So you are not just left on your own to figure out how to approach me about that, which could be very uncomfortable to you and lead to you not doing anything and then therefore lead to everybody seeing that I can kind of you know, do whatever I want. And so maybe everybody else can, too. Um, so having it having those conversations on a regular basis, how are we doing? How are we doing with trust building and trust maintaining? Do we, you know, do we, are we all 
continuing to have a sense of care that we that we actually support each other and care about each other is there psychological safety here do which means do we all still feel safe in bringing up things that are difficult touchy kind of you know whatever are we doing it well you know are are uh, are the people on this organ in this team or in this school um, using language that does not put other people on the defensive when you know, we talk about stuff. Uh, all those kinds of things, being able to talk about it and then check back in with it regularly. So it's the leader's job, really, to lead that. And it's everybody else's job, if the leader isn't doing it, to check in with that. And the leader needs to be equipped with the skills to do so. So they themselves need to take a deep dive into uh, developing the skills necessary to facilitate those discussions on an ongoing basis. Um, so when I think of your book, a quote comes to mind, and uh, the, the quote comes uh, from the book, uh, The Four Agreements, from uh, the author Miguel Angel Ruiz. And what he says is, don't make assumptions find the courage to ask questions and to express what you really want. And the beautiful thing about your book, Charles, is that it really encourages people to truly give others another chance and that we should not overgeneralize and think that if a person has done one thing that has betrayed trust, we can never trust them again, just cut them off. So instead, your book focuses on helping people to understand that trust is more than just distrust versus trust, but that there are four distinct assessments. You've touched upon them already. For the listener, can you share those four assessments of, of trust? And, and just to speak a little bit about each one to provide more context. Yeah. So first of all, let me just say that an assessment is not a fact. It's my assessment. So when I have an assessment about you and your behavior, it's mine. It's not, it, it's, it's not you. It's my assessment of your behavior, my story mm -hmm. about your behavior. Um, so it's really valuable for us to have shared have a shared idea of what that behavior is it means your behavior that i'm looking at my behavior that you're looking at mm -hmm. so in so when i'm going back back to the definition um to risk choosing so how might i make that risk assessment and so the i have four i talk about four different domains um, in which we can make risk assessments and they kind of overlap to some degree the first one that I talk about is what I call care. And that essentially is that my, I, I assess that you have my interests in mind, as well as your own, of course, when you make decisions and take actions. You intend good for me. So in that sense, I believe that you, that you care about so I can trust you in the domain of care if, if I believe that, if I assess that, you have my, my interests in mind as well as your own. Sometimes our interests might conflict. Uh, and there's a lot there. There's a lot in that 
that I look at and make decisions about, okay, what's, what does that mean? And, and how is that affecting my assessment of your trustworthiness in this domain? And so the more we can talk about those things, the more we're going to be able to build and maintain trust with each other. So um, if you're my, my boss and uh, you tell me, yeah, you know what, Charles, I, I really want you to be successful. And to that end, I'm going to give you some feedback that I think is important for you to hear. And if I do have the assessment that I can trust that you have my well-being in mind, I'm going to be able to listen to that, hopefully, in a way that's, that I can take it in and actually do something about that. If I don't believe that you have my interests in mind, you're just, you know, you're, you're just unloading your own stuff on me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to trust, I, I won't trust that and I won't be able to benefit from that. Mm-hmm. That's just one simple example mm-hmm. um, in that domain. So that's the domain of care, that you have my interests, my well-being in, in mind. You care about that, about me as a human being, not just me as the guy who does X in your organization. Sincerity is the assessment that you you walk your talk. In other words, you act with integrity. So your words and your actions are aligned. So if you say to me, uh, Charles, I, I'm big on feedback. I think this should be a high feedback organization. Feedback is how we learn and, and grow as an organization, whatever, whatever you talk about that. But then the first time I try and give you some feedback, you shut me down. That's not a trust-building maneuver. If, on the other hand, you listen, even though you may not agree, you listen and you respect what I have to say and you're curious about where I'm coming from, it's a hugely trust-building move Mm -hmm. in that domain of sincerity. It's also honesty. That's another piece of sincerity. Can I believe that you're honest with me? At least to the extent that it's possible within the organizational context. there are, there are uh, constraints, especially as you get higher in the organization in terms of leadership. There are constraints on what you can say to each other, but you move right up to those constraints. You, you, you're honest right up into those constraints. And you can also be honest about, hey, I'm constrained here. Yeah, exactly. I, I just want to ask you one thing about sincerity. So is vulnerability part of that? Because I kind of had a light bulb moment a, a couple of weeks ago and I was having a discussion with a colleague and we both kind of were opening up about something and we talked about that idea that as a leader it can sometimes be hard to say I I can't do this on my own or I worry that I I might not have the exact skill set to do this so making myself vulnerable and admitting that does that also, in your opinion, fall under the domain of sincerity? Yes, and also we'll get to competence because okay. that's another domain where that might show up. But yes, absolutely. Uh, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, making something vulnerable, that is your inability to do something well and needing help. Mm-hmm. That's what's important is needing, you're, you're making that vulnerable um, in that context. And that's a, that is a tricky one. You know, mm-hmm. how is, how, as a boss, who do I turn to? Mm-hmm. Especially if I'm at the very top of the organization, who do I turn to to say, I, I really um, am not sure of myself in this situation. 
Um, that's that's why a lot of people at the top of organizations hire coaches, right? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. they don't really feel like they can do that within the organization. Um, it's also why there are um, YPO groups and other kinds of groups that Young Presidents Organization is, is what YPO stands for, right. and other kinds of groups where um, top level leaders, CEOs can get together and talk with each other. But anyway, um, yes, I think that, um, right. Vulnerability is certainly part of that honesty, mm -hmm. um, but honesty really is, can I, can I believe what you say, or at least believe that you have, you're not just talking off the top of your head. You are, you, you've thought about this. You, you've looked into this. You, your, it's your opinion versus a fact and you understand that it's an opinion not not a fact mm -hmm. so that's part of honesty so there's that whole domain of sincerity then there's a, a domain of reliability which is do you keep the specific commitments you make you know so you you know you say okay i'll have uh, this new uh I'll, I'll have a proposal done by friday afternoon at four o'clock and i'll have it on your desk so you can review it can i fully expect or trust that it's going to show up at four o'clock and it'll be you know sufficiently well done it might be a you know draft form but it's there's enough of it there that i can work with um right. or if not that you, if, if I come and ask you for something and you uh, realize that you can't do it to the expectations that I might be having, that you make that clear to me. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a whole language or a, a, a sort of a, what I call the cycle of commitment around making requests, negotiating, making commitments, and following through beyond there. Right. It talks about it in the book. Um, but the idea is basically, can I trust that you will, in the domain of reliability, that will you keep your commitments? Mm -hmm. And then there's competence. And competence, you touched on earlier, you know, I, I, I don't know if I have the skill set to do this right now. Um, I'm concerned about that. So what are the expectations of competence for any particular role or job within, you know, that you might be doing. So can I trust that you're competent? Um, so here's a classic one. I mean, it happens so many times. It's just like, it happens every day. Uh, somebody who is really good as an engineer, he's a top engineer, um, and has actually run engineering projects. Um, so that person gets promoted to an actual leadership role. Their competence as an engineer says nothing about their trustworthiness and in the domain of being competent as a leader, as a manager and as a leader. It's a whole different domain of, of work. And so trusting that I, trusting that you're going to be, that I can, you know, follow your lead as an engineer on an engineering project is very different than trusting that I can follow you as a, a leader of this, you know, software engineering group or the whole organization, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so what are the standards by which we're assessing 
And being able to share those, you know, we're on a team, or just you and I are working together, sharing, taking the time, and this is part of trust building, taking the time to share expectations or standards around competence. So I'm not expecting something of you that you don't have any idea about, or vice versa. One of the things that I do want to um, point to also is care and sincerity have more to do with how I how I show up, right? So if I'm you, I'm you, and I are in a work relationship together, um, and I show up as trustworthy in those two domains, it has a lot. It bears on the context of our relationship, right? Um, Whereas reliability and competence have to do with the the content of our Mm. relationship, what we're doing. So if we have, if we trust each other um, in the context of care and sincerity, it will make it all a lot easier for us to address issues around the content, around reliability and competence. And and I think everything you're describing and the way you're describing the, the domains of trust, one of the things that really jumps out to me is uh, the use of language and using language in an empowering way. You gave the example of the, the boss starting off in a very non-threatening way and then saying, I really do care about you and your success. And bearing that in mind, I, I want to give you some feedback that I know will help you get better in your role. The use of language is so important. So can you just, before we head towards the end of the conversation, can you just talk about the power of language and the importance of developing language in a way that empowers everybody you work with? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Let's take a step back. How I and I heard this many years ago, and I I, I believe it was uh, Bob Dunham who talks about organizations as networks of conversations. Institute for Generative Leadership is his mm-hmm. his organization, uh, and he talks about um, looking at organizations as networks of conversations, and. When the right people are having the right conversations at the right times and in the right ways, that organization is going to be maximally successful. And it's the right way that's mm-hmm. the, the, the important, most important piece of that. So if you and I are talking about whatever it is, um, there are pieces of that that are really important. And it depends. So there are some key kinds of conversations that need to be had. And they're different from each other. And mm-hmm. I'll just take one example, a conversation for uh, discovery, you know, where we talk about, um, or innovation is another way to talk about, where we talk about possibilities, right? So we're, you know, what's possible here? And that's all about curiosity and openness and, uh, and, and uh, really exploration. And there's language and how we ask questions and how we listen to each other in that context. But in terms of generating action and coordinating action, that's a that's a whole different set of conversations that sound and look 
different. So that's I talk about the the cycle of commitment. That's part of the converse, the action conversations, which are different. So understanding what kind of conversation we're in and what the value of that conversation is or where we're going with that conversation is important. So now I'm going to go back to one of the, I think one of the most fundamental conversations, which is a conversation for relationship. That's the trust building. Brene Brown talks about this in the sense of, you know, trust is built into small moments. Every interaction that I have with someone else is an opportunity to build and or maintain trust or a time when I can actually damage trust in some way. (laughs) And going back to this whole being intentional about it, I want to be able to build trust. So how do I need to say what I'm going to say? And I just had this wonderful coaching conversation with a client just before we started our call in which she was really beginning to recognize in a way that she had choices around how she was going to say what she was going to say to certain people. And she's at the sea level and she's kind of working with her, her peers there. How's she going to say things that will, as you say, raise other people up and mm-hmm. at the same time, be honest. Mm-hmm. So honest, like or there's a, you know, tell the truth and, and point to hope. We can move forward where yeah. we're going. So, yes, language is powerful. It's how we communicate. And we also communicate in other ways, right? We communicate with our bodies. Yeah. We communicate so much with our bodies, um, not only to others, but back to ourselves. So being aware of how we're showing up physically, even in this kind of weird virtual world where we see just a flat two-dimensional version of each other, our body language communicates a whole lot. So again, going back to being intentional, do I intend to build and maintain trust with this person, with Andy? Yeah, I do. That's my intent. So now how am I going to say what I'm going to say in a way that I think he will interpret as worthy of his extending trust to me? Yeah, I like that. And if we look at the metaphor of the the light switch of uh, trust or not trust, what we talked about earlier in the podcast, you don't just turn off the the trust. Um, It's not an on-off switch. And being a good communicator and using language in empowering ways some people think that people are naturally gifted with it and others are not. So, but it is a buildable skill for everybody. You can build the skill of using empowering language. Everybody has the the inner capacity to do so and to use language that's empowering. Just double down on the way you use language and practice and get feedback on it. Yes. Yeah. So in closing, uh, I'm going to ask you where people can find you. But when you think of leaders from any industry, any organization, what do you think leaders need to let go of within themselves to build a more empowering environment based on strengthening trust and positive relationships within the organization? One thing I think they can let go of to a great extent is I know the answer, which allows for curiosity to emerge so that they can become curious about, hey, what, what does this person see as trustworthy behavior? 
what do I see as trustworthy behavior in another person? Mm-hmm. Um, so letting go of I know the answer, or at least I should know the answer. That's as a leader, that's my role is to know the damn answer. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. truth, of, truth of the matter is, as a leader, it's not necessarily my know my role to know the answer. Um, so when I coach someone, I say that part of this coaching journey it, that we're on is that I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable, seemingly to me. But in fact, what's going on here is I'm asking you to be vulnerable to yourself. Mm-hmm. So really um, be willing to confront, open up to yourself in a deep way. Mm-hmm. If as a leader, I go into something with I know all the answers, I'm never going to get to that point. And I'm rarely ever going to get to the point where I have really generative conversations with the people around me. I'm always just going to be right or feel like I need to be right and show up that way, Mm -hmm. which is a heavy piece of armor to carry around all day long. Yeah. uh, That, that mask of competence in every situation, right? So last question, if we were to project another decade down the road, and if you were to look back on your life and your work, uh, what is it that you hope people will most remember about you? Well, let's see, I'll be 81 in another decade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the legacy that I'm trying to leave here, if you you think about it that way, not just um, over the next, you know, for the the future, but every day and every interaction really, at least with regard to trust, is that um, I want, more people to be able to build stronger trust in the relationships they have with each other, specifically in the domain, in the area of, of work, because that's where I've been focusing all of my work. Um, but you can apply this stuff anywhere else, uh, really. But I hope that I'm remembered, if you will, um, tomorrow and 10 years from now uh, for having uh, brought that capacity or developed or gen- helped to generate that capacity in more and more people, you know, more people around the world. Um, I think that trust, a, a big helping of trust would be so valuable in our, in our world today. There's so much distrust and it's really causing great pain and suffering from the workplace to the political arena to uh, to places where people are literally suffering from bombs falling out of the sky on their yeah. their houses yeah yeah well thank you for sharing that and and I think again going back to your your work I think it's very beautiful in the sense that it opens the gateway to rebuilding relationships and especially rebuilding relationships in the workplace. So what was once lost doesn't need to be that way. If you use a specific framework and have important discussions to, to rebuild relationships. And when you do, the possibilities are endless. 
So uh, I really want to thank you for your work. And where can people find you? www.insightcoaching, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G, all one word, dot com is my website. You can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Those are two, two easiest ways to find okay. me. Yeah. Okay, great. And, and I'll, uh, I'll put that in the show notes. So, Charles, I'm just going to close off the show, but thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Okay. I've enjoyed great. it. Thank you to you, everybody. Thank you very much for listening to this episode with Charles Feltman, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vasily.